As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Ed McBride, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Rapid growth in inequality has become a rallying point for left-wing politicians everywhere. But has inequality really grown as much as angry voters imagine? And cows, sheep, and other livestock burp up a lot of methane, a potent greenhouse gas. But scientists in America and Australia have found a way to soothe their stomachs. First up, though. Heads of state are arriving in London this morning to commemorate the 70th anniversary of NATO and ponder the future of the Transatlantic Military Treaty. For many, the birthday celebration seemed well-deserved. The average lifespan of a collective defense alliance is just 15 years. Others feel the organization is showing its age. In October, French President Emmanuel Macron told The Economist that he sees the American commitment dwindling and believes NATO is suffering brain death. This morning, President Donald Trump responded to those comments, calling them nasty and disrespectful. It's, uh, it's a very tough statement to make when you have such difficulty in, in France. You look at what's happened with the yellow vests or you look at what's going on during certain parts of their season. They've had a very rough year. And you just can't go around making statements like that about NATO. It's very disrespectful. But Mr. Trump himself has previously threatened to pull the United States out of NATO if other states didn't contribute more. Since then, he's taken credit for spending increases, although he still calls for more. Uh, tremendous progress has been made. Everyone's agreed to substantially up their commitment. They're going to up it at levels that they've never thought of before. In an interview with our podcast, The Economist asks, last month, NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg conceded that there is debate over the future. We are 29 different countries from both sides of the Atlantic with different political parties in, in government. And we see differences on issues like uh, trade, like climate change, uh, the Iran nuclear deal, and now most recently in, uh, about the situation in northeast Syria. But we have seen differences before in NATO, and the strength of NATO is that we have always been able to deal with them, to overcome them. And in response to the French president's calls for Europe to start thinking of itself as a geopolitical power, Mr. Stoltenberg said NATO remained irreplaceable. Actually, NATO, uh, the United States, we have asked for more European efforts on defense for many years. And then, of course, we cannot complain when Europeans are stepping up. But this has to be not an alternative to NATO, cannot replace NATO. It, 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 it must uh, strengthen the European pillar within NATO. As the leaders attend a reception at Buckingham Palace tonight and meet tomorrow, they will have plenty to talk about. Well, at 70, the odd thing is that in some respects, NATO is amazingly sprightly and fit and looking quite good. Daniel Franklin is The Economist's diplomatic editor. It's had 
in response to Russia's invasion and grabbing of Crimea and its activities in Ukraine, it's refocused on its core mission of defending Europe and America's put in a lot of extra money. There is a multinational battle group in the three Baltic states and in Poland. Big exercises are taking place, the biggest since the Cold War. So NATO has been reinvigorated, but at the same time, the very purpose of NATO is being questioned, questions about whether the Allies are pulling their weight in the way that America would see they should, and the long-term future of NATO with China's rise and other security threats on the horizon is in question. So it's a rather strange celebration. On the one hand, in good condition. On the other hand, fundamental questions being raised about its future. Um, so who, who are the, the, the people who are raising these doubts? Uh, will any of them be at the summit? Well, all of them will be at the summit. The, the original troublemaker, and for a long time until recently, the main troublemaker was Donald Trump in America, who actually, before he became president, described NATO as obsolete. Now, he, he no longer says that, but he's been extremely harsh and blunt in his criticism of the Allies and their failure to live up to their spending commitments. He sees that America is carrying an unfair share of the burden. In particular, he points the finger at Germany. Now, previous presidents have been critical of NATO, have said Allies must do more, but nobody has done it with quite the same vigor and seriousness and persistence as Trump. And at one stage at a summit in 2018, even threatening to pull America out of the alliance if the others didn't shape up. So he has caused a lot of ripples around the alliance. So has all Mr. Trump's prodding had any effect? Well, I think it's had two effects. On the one hand, it has actually made some of the allies think more seriously about spending more. Some of these plans were in train already, but he certainly will be quick to claim credit for the European allies and Canada spending about $130 billion extra on defence compared with previous plans in the period from 2016 to 2020, which happens to more or less coincide with his time in office. So he, he, he may actually prefer to claim NATO as a success for him now rather than as a problem. On the other hand, the fact that he's been so critical and has questioned America's commitment to the alliance, has made other presidents, other NATO members, wonder about how much they can rely on America. And I suppose the principal one who's recently been expressing those doubts is President Macron of France, who, in an interview with us recently, called NATO or spoke of NATO as experiencing brain death, and that sent ripples around the alliance as well. In particular, he was critical of the failure of coordination of the Allies' strategies in Syria, and he criticized Turkey's actions and questioned whether, in the light of Turkey's adventures in northern Syria, the Allies would come to the aid of Turkey if it was attacked, say, by the Syrian regime. And the essence of NATO is its so-called Article 5, the mutual defense by which an attack on on one member is considered to be an attack on all. So this goes to the very heart of the credibility of NATO. So uh, how widely shared are the, are the misgivings about Turkey that, that President Macron aired? Well, there were already some misgivings about Turkey because Turkey has, for example, bought a Russian air defense system which allies worry could compromise the data and the technologies of NATO's own aircraft. So Turkey's been chucked out of the 
F-35 fighter jet program. So that's been a problem. And Turkey itself has responded furiously to President Macron's questioning of, of its own actions. The insults have been hurled. So this is not a great way to move into what should have been a celebratory summit. So you have these three bristling presidents. Do you expect sparks to fly at the actual summit? Well, the hope is that in London, President Trump will, relatively speaking, tone himself down and, and, as I mentioned, may like to see NATO as more of a success than a problem. So he may not be as critical as he has been before, that somehow Presidents Macron and Erdogan will make up and will manage to not hold up decisions. I think that's the key thing that people worry about Turkey. NATO has to make decisions by unanimity, and, and Turkey is being a bit awkward in that respect as well. But I think the questions that President Macron has raised about what is the purpose of, of NATO for the coming decades when what really matters is a changing security landscape with China's rise, and as he would see it, Russia as a perhaps an awkward country, but one that needs to be dealt with strategically, those will hang over the, the leaders' meetings and may not find satisfactory answer yet. Thank you, Daniel, for explaining it all to us. Thank you very much. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Over the last decade, the belief that inequality has risen in the rich world has been a central theme of political debate. The economy is still rigged in favor of the rich and powerful. It is not moral, it is not acceptable, and it is not sustainable that the top one-tenth of one percent now owns almost as much wealth as the bottom 90 percent. This increasing inequality is most pronounced in our country, and it challenges the very essence of who we are as a people. I believe this is the defining challenge of our time. The global financial crisis fueled criticism of greedy bankers who were bailed out despite being accused of causing the crash. Many bankers in the city were quite simply irresponsible. They paid themselves vast rewards when it was all going well, and the minute it went wrong, they came running for a bailout. Protest movements around the world, such as Occupy Wall Street, have taken aim at the top 1%. Protesters argue that only the wealthiest reap the rewards of capitalism, while ordinary people are struggling. But do the assumptions behind the belief that inequality has been rising hold up? Inequality is very high up the political agenda at the moment, particularly in rich countries. And there are a number of strands of the conventional wisdom about inequality. Callum Williams is Britain economics correspondent for The Economist. However, economists are now starting to question that conventional wisdom. And there are many ways in which the conventional wisdom could be surprisingly wrong. So what is the conventional wisdom as it stands now? 
So there basically are four strands to this. The first one concerns inequality of income. And the idea is that will seem very familiar to most people is that income inequality has gone up a lot across the rich world over the past 30 to 40 years. The top 1%, for instance, are doing a lot better than the bottom 99%. That seems like a very familiar idea. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that if you look at the wages of middle-income people, so as a person in the middle of the kind of income distribution, a lot of people say, looking at data, that once you adjust for inflation, in rich countries, that middle-income person basically hasn't seen any improvement in their wages over the past sometimes 20 years, sometimes 30 years, sometimes 40 years. So like up to four decades of wage stagnation in the middle of the income distribution. The third thing, if wages have gone up, which is disputable, they definitely have not gone up as fast as productivity. Now, productivity basically is how much a worker produces per hour. So the idea is that workers are getting more productive. They're not reaping the benefits of that higher productivity. Someone else is. So basically, capitalists are, are, are taking that extra productivity for themselves. And what that means in an economy-wide sense is that the so-called labor share of income, so in other words, if you have GDP, how much of that GDP is going to, to workers in the form of wages and salaries? The labor share of income has been on a downward trend for 20, 30, 40 years. And then the fourth one is to do with wealth inequality. So income and wealth are different things. Income is a flow of money in a given year. And wealth is the kind of value of the assets that you have under your control. So the stock, so it's flows versus stock. And the idea is that wealth inequality has also gone up very significantly across the rich world. So that, in a rather large nutshell, is the conventional wisdom. And where did it come from? How did these become the four strands of the story of inequality that we've been hearing recently? Well, I think there are lots of reasons, but I think you can make the case that the work of three economists, all of whom are French, as it happens, over the past 20-odd years has done a lot to shape the public discourse about inequality. Now, the most famous of those three economists is Thomas Piketty, who is particularly known for a book he wrote in 2013 in French, 2014 in English, Capital in the 21st Century. But there are two others, Gabriel Zuckman and Emmanuel Sayers, who are friends and, and co-authors with Piketty. Basically, they have produced the definitive data, particularly on income and wealth inequality. And this phrase, the 1%, which was the defining call of Occupy Wall Street, for instance, is something that owes quite a lot to the work of Piketty in particular, because kind of early on in the research process, Piketty basically decided that what kind of matters politically is how the very, very top of the income distribution are doing. So one could make the case that, in fact, Piketty kind of gave Occupy Wall Street its vocabulary in some respects. So the suggestion is this received wisdom is, is somewhat in question. Yes, I think that's right. So we're at a very early stage here. And the research that is questioning the conventional wisdom is not a slam dunk case saying it's wrong or anything like that. It's just saying, hang on, let's take a step back and make a few adjustments to how we calculate these numbers and see how it turns out. So as for the conventional wisdom, the researchers who are operating in this domain are making a number of different changes. So let's take income inequality, for instance. The easiest one to understand is about marriage, okay? So over time, marriage rates among rich people have stayed pretty constant since the 1960s. They have not stayed constant among the poorer sections of the population. They have fallen. Now, that's a problem for calculating income inequality because if you calculate income inequality at the household level over time, then if rich people are more likely to stay together than poor people, their incomes get combined. Whereas for poor people, their incomes become separated into two different sort of households. And so if you don't make the correct adjustments in your data, simply because of changing marriage rates over time, income inequality goes up. So there's some research that says, okay, hang on, let's try and control for all these changes 
And that just brings down inequality ever so slightly. But the point is they make lots of these different changes. And in fact, there is some research on inequality now, which is suggesting that it hasn't gone up by anywhere near as much as people think, and it may not even have gone up at all. But some of these things don't look quite so assailable, like wealth inequality. Why is it so hard just to measure it? So you would think it would be very easy to measure. But in fact, once you start to think about it, it becomes extremely kind of gnarly. So for instance, if someone has got a massive collection of artwork, that counts as part of their wealth. It could be quite a big part of their wealth. But it's very hard to know how much that wealth actually is worth. Perhaps another example is someone who's got a company that's not listed on the stock market. I mean, look at what happened with WeWork, for instance. They wanted to IPO. They thought that WeWork was valued at this. And in fact, it was valued at that. And that was a lot lower than this. So these things are very hard to measure. And if measurement is so difficult, then working out the inequality becomes even more difficult. But regardless of the accuracy of the conventional wisdom, the perception of great wealth inequality is out there. And a lot of people have spun that into an argument against capitalism more generally. This discussion about inequality, no one should believe that we're arguing that there's nothing wrong with modern capitalism. That is not what we're arguing at all. There is plenty wrong with modern capitalism. I mean, just to pick a few examples completely at random, big listed companies today have way too much pricing power. They can control supply chains to a a much greater extent than they used to. And this is bad both for workers and for consumers. That's just one thing. The housing market in almost all rich countries is basically completely out of control. Housing is way too expensive. That creates massive welfare losses. There's a lot to do. However, the stuff that needs to be done may not concern wealth taxation. It may concern other reforms. Callum, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The UN Climate Change Conference, known as COP25, started in Madrid yesterday, with world leaders gathering to discuss how best to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions. While carbon dioxide is the most well-known gas that's contributing to climate change, it's not the only one to be worried about. Methane's a gas, it's a really potent greenhouse gas um, to the extent that it has a global warming potential that's 28 times as powerful as carbon dioxide's. Andrea Graves writes about science for The Economist. She's been looking into innovative methods to reduce methane in the atmosphere. And an enormous amount of it is belched out of ruminant livestock such as cattle and sheep. There's scientists all around the world um, trying to figure out how to reduce the amount of methane that uh, ruminant livestock animals emit. And it looks as though feeding seaweed to these animals, a certain type of seaweed called asparagopsis, can drastically reduce how much methane they produce. This is research uh, coming out of Australia over the last decade or so. So you mentioned ruminant livestock, cattle and things. What does ruminant mean and why is it significant in this instance? Ruminants are animals that have a special kind of stomach. The first stomach that their food goes into is it's actually a fermentation vat and it's full of a lot of different types of microbes and their job is to take the really fibrous food that these animals eat and transform it into energy. A small subset of these microbes produce methane gas as an exhaust gas. It's one of their breakdown products and the animal can't use the methane and it belches it up and that's how it enters the atmosphere and does its unhelpful global warming job. In the overall picture of global warming, how big a part is, is methane from livestock? Methane accounts for about 16% of global greenhouse gas emissions. 
according to the International Panel for Climate Change. That was certainly the case um, in 2015. And of the methane that's produced in the world each year, about 40% of that comes from grazing animals. So it's clearly a problem that needs fixing. How, how do you reduce the level of methane produced by livestock? Well, that's a question that's occupying a lot of scientists at the moment. They are looking for a way to block these methane-producing microbes that live in the rumen. And it's seeming that feeding the animals seaweed, a specific seaweed called asparagopsis, has the potential to cut the amount of methane that those microbes produce. So how does that work exactly? The seaweed contains a specific chemical called bromoform and that blocks one of the enzymes in the methanogen's digestive system so that it can no longer produce methane. Is this a recent discovery? How long have, have scientists known that seaweed could help in this way? Feeding seaweed to livestock is not at all a new idea. In ancient Greek writings, there's reports of livestock eating seaweed and the Icelandic sagas describe it as well. Publications started to come out in 2016 showing really significant methane reductions when it was fed to sheep. And one of the latest studies that's come out from Australian and US researchers show that dairy cows eating a diet with a very low concentration of the asparagopsis seaweed, just 1%, produced only a third of the methane that was belched up by cows that hadn't eaten seaweed. And where would all the seaweed come from to do this? Well, at the moment, it's a problem even for the scientists to get enough to do their research. They pay scuba divers to go out in boats and collect wild seaweed. So the main option that's being investigated is to farm it in an aquaculture system. No one's doing that at the moment. An obvious alternative to that might be synthesising bromoform in the lab and having this pure bromoform available to feed the animals. But it's a really volatile compound, so it evaporates into the air quickly and creates a gas. And there'd also be a lot of regulatory hurdles. And the scientists are pretty sure that retailers and consumers will feel a lot happier about eating meat and drinking milk from animals that have eaten a natural product such as seaweed rather than a synthesised chemical in a laboratory. But you already mentioned that it was hard to find enough seaweed even for the experiments the scientists are conducting. Uh, is there a plausible way to increase the supply if you think consumers would prefer the natural product? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what's been looked at at the moment. The researchers are telling me that every country in the world that has a lot of cattle and the ability to grow seaweed is interested in farming asparagopsis. There's the odd private company trying to set up to do this. They're in the very early stages. If the experiments are done and it can be taken through successfully, there'll be a huge international interest in getting hold of this stuff so that countries can meet their commitments made under the Paris Agreement and still continue to farm their animals, grow meat and grow milk. Andrea, thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. That's all from us on The Intelligence. But we'd like to know more about you and what you think of the show. Do us a favor and head over to economist.com slash podsurvey. Jason will be back with you tomorrow. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. 
But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.